Good morning. Well, it was cold in Indiana. Man, it was cold. Did I just mess this up here? Good? All right. It's cold in Indiana. Uh, Tim sends his greetings. Uh, he was um, he was very uh, grateful uh, to where he's at spiritually. He says that he attributes it to RBC, and so I just wanted to let you guys know that he is grateful uh, for the fellowship that's been occurring here and for the work that God has been doing here. Um, but yeah, would you turn with me to the book of First John? book of 1 John. We are in chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. And we are just going to go over one verse, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, okay? Why don't we pray? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. We ask you would uh, help our hearts to hear your word. Lord, we pray for uh, your cleansing. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray that we would focus. We pray, Father, that your son would be exalted. Lord, Father, we pr- uh, Lord, we also pray that you would help us to apply the word and to see the glory of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 2 and verse 1, John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. I've entitled this sermon, Moving On. This is the intercessory work of Christ. I think there's a, a couple words in Christianity. and it's, I understand that we need to simplify uh, some of the concepts that are in Scripture so that we could take it in into our lives. But there are certain words that we have to have as Christians. And one of those words is intercession, the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. I remember one time um, I had a brother in Christ. He was caught in sexual immorality. He was in sin. He confessed. He repented. But I remember, I, I believe it was a true repentance, and it was a true repentance, but I remember looking in his eyes and he said, you know what, I can't even go to church. I can't even get there. I feel so guilty of my sin, of what I've done, I can't even get there. And I believe that he is truly saved. I believe that God has really worked in his life and that he has changed. And what is occurring is the guilt of the sin that he has done was overpowering, such that he couldn't move on. And so we entitle this sermon, Moving On, the Intercessory Work of Christ, because I believe that God gave this passage to you this morning so you would not be paralyzed by your sin. 
God gave this passage to you this morning so you would not be paralyzed by your sin. We remember that John is talking and he says here in um, chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from you, from him, verse 5, and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And so what he's talking about is that there's a general pattern of a Christian. One, that a Christian will walk in light, that an unbeliever will walk in darkness, that is apart from Christ. That a Christian desires the things of Christ, desires to please Him, desires His Word, desires to be in fellowship. An unbeliever does not. Does not want to be with Christians. Does not want to be in His Word. Does not want to be under the preaching of His Word, the teaching of His Word. Does not want to live a participation. It is clear, cut and clear, the way the Scriptures are teaching it. But even having said that, the scriptures are teaching us that in this, that there is in the text a direction that the Christian must be going through. A direction. This doesn't mean perfection. This means a direction. I was going this way towards the world. God arrested me. Caused me to see the glory of Christ such that I repented from the world and I turned to the Savior and I, ha I grabbed a hold of Christ and I believed in Him. I had faith in Him. And so now the direction of my life, even though I may stumble or fall at times, the general direction of my life is following after Christ. But in our reality, John even talks about this. He does talk about the black and the white, doesn't he? Darkness and light. But in our reality, we still stumble in sin, don't we? We still, as a Christian, we still have these besetting sins that we struggle with. We still may struggle with bitterness. We still may struggle with lust. We still may struggle with greed. We still may struggle with pride. We may have outbursts of anger. When we're impatient, we blow up on our kids. We blow up on our wife. We blow up on our, we blow up on our husbands. We blow up on our siblings. We buck under a, the authority of Christ. And all these things, what is fantastic is the Lord Jesus is there for you even in your failures. Amen. Notice he says, and my first point, um, I just remember these first two points. It was about the thief on the cross, but I thought it was so appropriate that I used it as my outline here. My first point is simply presume not. Presume not. You notice he says here, and if I were to paraphrase the first part of verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, don't take Jesus for granted. Don't take Jesus for granted. He starts off with this relationship and he says, my little children, and you can see that in two different dimensions. 
The word there for little children means toddlers. It's a term of endearment. He is expressing the family of God, right? These are the folks who are actually saved. These are the folks who has, whose lives have been changed. These are the folks who believe in Christ. These are the folks who are walking in righteousness, who hate their sin, who may stumble at times, yes, but then when they stumble, they repent of it and they go right back to following Christ. Okay? He calls them my little children. As the apostle, he cares for them and he loves them. It's the family of God. This promise is only for the family of God. If verse 1 is not true, if you are not a child of God, you do not have Christ as your advocate, brothers and sisters here. Friends, if you do not have Jesus as your Savior, Jesus is not your advocate. If you do have Jesus as your Savior, He is your advocate. Look at this verse. It's one of the first verses I remembered even as a Christian. Um, he who has the Son, where is that? Has the life. He who does not have the Son. Here it is, verse uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. And so what... John is saying is here, you know that you have forgiveness in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. And he gives us these statements so that we may not sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If you remember the background, there are false teachers, the proto-gnostics. They were teaching that all that matter, all that matter, all of matter is evil and all the soul is good. Matter is evil, soul is good. One sad application to this is that since the soul, they were thinking, since the soul is good, I can sin all I want. It'll never affect my soul. And John argues that this greatly offends God. This lack of concern for sin is a mark of an unbeliever. And so he says to Christians, I say this to you. I write these things. I have taken it upon myself, even if I'm in prison in the island of Patmos. Remember, John is in the island of Patmos. He is an old man, right? He says, I write these things so that you may not sin. Now, what are these things? Well, he just started that which is written in the letter. We notice in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, the word of life. We testify, we proclaim to you, which was manifested. Verse 3, what we have heard and proclaim in fellowship with him. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says to them, I tell you about the glory of Christ. His wonder, His majesty that He came in the form of man to die on the cross. I tell you about His glory. Why? So that part of the reason why you won't sin is that you're caught up with Christ. And isn't that true? If you look at the scriptures, it says, put away this, put on Christ. Be filled with the Spirit and you won't do the deeds of the flesh. He calls us to gaze upon the glory of of Christ. What allows you to release the temptations of this world is not simply saying, I'm not going to do it. You ever try that game? I'm just not going to do it. What allows you to release the things of this world 
is a greater glimpse of the beauty of Christ himself. Secondly, he talks about true and lasting joy. Notice in verse 4, he says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If you are gazing upon the glory of Christ in his word, you are filled with such joy that you don't want to sin. You are filled with such joy that you don't want any substitute that the world will offer. You don't want any cheap substitute. I want the rich thing. I, I, I know, you ever notice when you go to a restaurant, a nice restaurant, um, and you order a nice meal, they always give you a lot of these, a lot of bread, right? They want you to get full on the bread, right? Um, and they always want, you know, and they want you to get, feel this sensation of full of just bread. But for us, brothers and sisters, Christ is our meal. And he wants us to be filled with him to have true and lasting joy. Thirdly, what are these things? He says, that it, he says one of the things that would cause you to not sin is first the glory of Christ. Second, it is true and lasting joy in him. But third, it is the distinction of believers and unbelievers. Now, this, is, this doesn't become readily apparent. But you notice here, he says, oftentimes, like when we see here in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Sometimes when we look at that text, we say, well, see, this is for unbelievers, not for me. You see here, this is what an unbeliever is. And so I'm just not going to read this because I already got it. I'm already saved. But brothers and sisters, what he's saying here is that as you uh, hear what the warning is, what a Christian is, what a non-Christian is, the Christian hears it, internalizes it, notices it, and it arouses him to greater righteousness and holiness. The warning of Scripture that says a Christian is like this, a non-Christian is like this, causes him to say, hey, I am a Christian. I have to live this way. God has called me to live this way. And that's why we hear, even in the text, it says in chapter 3, verse 10, by the, if you notice, even as I read this word, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The Christian hears that, and it is a sanctifying agent in his life. I can't live like an unbeliever. I can't do that anymore. I can't live without love in my heart. I can't live in unrighteousness anymore. I've got to live holy, and I've got to seek his strength to do so. John says, I write these things so that you may not sin, so that you may not presume, right? In other words, there is growth and holiness in the warnings. When a Christian hears what he should not be doing and what he should be doing, he is aroused to greater devotion centered on Christ. He does not want to be in a state of unbelief. But lastly, here, what are these things that John is writing? Forgiveness and cleansing of believers. Forgiveness and cleansing of believers. We know this in verse 9. 
Verse 9, as a pattern of a Christian, he says, if we confess, or you can translate, if we are confessing, okay, that's present active indicative in the original language. If we are characterized as people who confessed, Christians confess, they repent. It's amazing political uh, race here. No one confesses to anything. Well, redirect, I'll just, well, what about this? Well, I'll just redirect and cause it, it's your fault. Well, what about you and why did you do this? Well, what about your husband? No confession of sin. No repentance. The Bible says that a mark of a Christian is someone who confesses their sin and they enjoy the cleansing of their sins. But see, some people will say this. Some say, see, free forgiveness will encourage sin. And their thinking is this. If forgiveness is really free, then aren't you just going to do what you want? If forgiveness is really free, aren't you're just going to sin however you want. But on the contrary, this is what's amazing. Grace causes holiness. On the contrary, Christ's free forgiveness is an impetus. It's a motivation. It's a stimulus for holiness. Believers will be motivated by grace for holiness and not sin. In Romans chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? These are the same kinds of people who says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? They're saying this. So since I'm a sinner, maybe I should just keep sinning because I'm going to be forgiven anyways. Same argument, right? If I keep sinning, then I guess I'll have more forgiveness. And the Bible says, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, grace, forgiveness, based in the blood sacrifice of Christ, causes the believer to want to follow him. You spent your blood for me, Jesus. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to sin against you. I'm sick of this sin in me. I don't want to do it anymore. He gives this passage that you would not presume on the precious forgiveness that God has granted you in Christ. In other words, John wrote so that you would not take Christ, take his forgiveness, take his blood for granted. As a Christian, you have tasted of this forgiveness and to put it quite simply, you should know better. That's it, right? You should know better. The Bible talks much about presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins meaning what we just discussed about. Presumptuous sins meaning, hey, I know I'm going to be forgiven, so I, I, I guess I'm just going to sin anyways because you know what? God's going to forgive me. The Bible talks much about that. John writes, I wrote these things so that you would not sin. But notice he says here in Psalm 19. Would you turn with me to Psalm 19? In Psalm 19, Psalm 19, we know this text. He says in verse 7, I love verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. That means his scriptures are perfect. Restoring the soul. Isn't that sweet? Scriptures can restore you. Amen? 
Amen. No, amen. Amen. The Bible can restore you. Notice he says here, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Right? But notice, let's skip down to verse 13. Notice what he says. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Sins that I already know is wrong. Sins that are taking the forgiveness of Christ for granted. Right? Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. Deuteronomy 17 says, And the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge that that man shall die, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. It takes a personal note when you sin against Christ and you know what you're doing and you presume upon his forgiveness. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. It's not that just that you broke a law. I think sometimes people think sin is just simply breaking some law, some kind of <coughs> principle Kind of like I just, oh, I just, you know, I just uh, ran a red light. I broke the law. It's not just that you broke the law. Notice it says here in Hebrews chapter 10, okay? Hebrews chapter 10. He says here in Hebrews 10 and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Then he says, the importance of getting together. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking. Verse 25, not forsaking. Notice the text. We don't want to forsake meeting with each other, okay? As is the habit of some, okay? But encouraging one another. You need the encouragement. This is why God causes us, calls us into participation of life, to fellowship. Then he says, Notice what he says here. Verse 26. This is this idea of presumptuous sin again. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In other words, if you keep continuing in sin, it shows that you don't know him. You were never forgiven in the first place. And he says, Any, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as clean the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has insulted the gifts, insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, as we sin presumptuously, he says we are, we are trampling on the Son of God. It is a personal offense. Now, this is huge, okay? This is huge. And I'm glad it, it doesn't stay there. Because if it was to stay there, I am guilty of presumptuous sins. I am guilty of relying on the grace of God and sinning anyways. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? 
Aren't we ornery people? That God has saved you from your sins. He has forgiven you. And even as a Christian, you still sin. Well, some of you men might say, well, I don't sin. I just want to talk to your wife. Give me five minutes with your wife. Right? Five minutes. Is he a sinner? Oh, yes, he's a sinner. Absolutely. He's a sinner. But here, here's the wonderful news, brothers and sisters. Okay? The first point is presume not. The second point is despair not. Despair not. And here's the sweet, sweet gospel truth, okay? So the first, first point you could kind of paraphrase, don't take Jesus for granted. But the second one you could paraphrase, don't think Jesus is done with you. Don't think Jesus is done with you. Have you ever got to a point where you irritated, maybe it's just me, <laughs> But have you ever got to a point where you've irritated someone so much that they say, I'm done with you? I'm done with you. Right? Right? I'm done. Right? Jesus will never, ever, ever say that to you. If you are a true child of God. Is this not glorious, brothers and sisters? You are having fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They will not cast you out, no matter what sin you've done. Despair not, despite your reality in this world. What is your reality of your fallen nature? He says, if anyone sins... The word there for sin, of course, is when you miss the mark, you fail morally, you offend God's law and God himself. This is the doctrine of remaining sin. The doctrine that we call either remaining sin or indwelling sin or remnant sin. We believe that Jesus, when he saves a person, he regenerates them. That is, he recovers their mind, will, and their heart. They are a new creature with a new will that faces towards God, desires God, a new heart that beats for affection after God, and a new mind that thinks the thoughts of God by being in Scripture. But even in that, there is remnant sin. Okay, Little pockets of rebellion. Little dust bunnies in your closets that Jesus has to come and sweep out. Okay, And He does this the whole of your life. Though the Christian has been regenerated, there still remains a principle of sin that he or she must presently put to death in the power of the Holy Spirit until glorification. Even if anyone sins, okay, this is where I fit. I know what I have to do, right? You know what you have to do. You know how God has called you, okay? This is for the Christians, remember. You know how God has called you, but you also know in the reality of realities that you still sin. And I praise him that we have an advocate. Amen. And he says here, notice, and here's the teaching, and you'll see it in Romans chapter 7. I want to instruct you on this teaching. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this, this principle of remnant sin. 
So that when people say they're Christians and they're perfect and they never sin and you know that they're false. You know that they're covering it up. Notice in Romans chapter 7, he says in verse 17, So now, no longer, I am the one doing it, but sin which indwells in me. For I know that nothing good indwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Verse 19, For the good that I want, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Brothers and sisters, there is this battle. There is this battle that you must do with sin. And God has given His Holy Spirit. He has given His Scriptures. He has given you the power of Christ. If you remember our last series in Ephesians, He has given us His armor to fight this. How are we to fight this sin? Okay, How are we to fight this sin? Well, the Bible says to starve it first. The Bible says to starve it. To move over a couple chapters in Romans chapter 13. The Christian has power to do this. All right, In Christ, Romans chapter 13. And verse 13, notice he says here, Romans chapter 13 and verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Verse 14 Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to his lust. In other words, don't put yourself in places where you will be tempted to sin. Take drastic measures of your sin, right? Secondly, how do you deal with this sin? The Bible also says to call it, to call it, like calling the time of death. You ever watch those, uh, um, you know, those... Uh, Dramas where someone dies on the operating table and they ask the doctor, okay, call it. And the doctor has to call it, right? Time of death, 1017, blah, 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 right? The person's already dead, right? But the doctor officially calls it. It's a considering of it as dead. Notice in Colossians chapter 3, we're jumping around. Notice in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Call it. Declare it. Think of it in this way. That is not you anymore. That is the old you. You're not that way anymore. And then he also says to frustrate it. And that is uh, in Galatians 5, it says, If I say walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. But lastly, he also says, how do you deal with this remnant sin? If anyone sins, how do you deal with it? Well, the Bible says to kill it. That means to take drastic measures. Romans chapter 8. 
Look at this text, okay? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to flesh, you must die. Look at verse 13. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The um, old King James used to say mortify, that is to slaughter, that is to deal viciously with sin. So this is how, if even if you sin, we are to deal with it this way. But here, at the apex of this text, if we go back to 1 John chapter 2, go back to 1 John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Presume not. Okay. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Despair not. Despair not. That's your reality, is your fight with sin. But now you have your representation in heaven. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. There is a problem, okay? There is a problem. Before Christ, you were under judgment. And it is not as what some of the world will teach you. If you notice even in the cartoons, when people are sent to some kind of imaginary hell, they always think it's the devil right? It's the devil who is punishing you. That is not the case at all. In Scripture, the Bible says it is God Himself who puts you in hell. In fact, the judge in this courtroom, if you notice he says advocate, the judge in this courtroom is God. The implication is that the Father executes judgment. In Genesis 18, he says, um, Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth deal righteous? Psalm 711, listen to this verse, okay? Psalm 711 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. What does that mean? He is upset and he is angry at man's sin every day. Whoa, 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 Angelo. I thought God is love. You ever hear that? I thought God is love. How come you're saying God is angry? You're painting like God is angry. God is love, but God is also angry. He is angry at sin. It is not a sinful anger. It is a righteous anger at the defaming of his name, at the offense to his law, at the offense of his person, at the cursing of his son, right? He is the judge. Here are the players, okay? The judge is God. Here's the accuser. Who's the accuser? Satan. <coughs> Satan is the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, we know this to be the fact. He says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. Here is what's happening. Okay? You have been forgiven in Christ. Verse 
2 is going to say you have been paid for, your blood, by the propitiation, which is Christ. Okay? You have been forgiven in Christ if you do know Christ. You truly know Him and you love Him. You've been forgiven. You sin. You confess. The accuser says, see God, look at this. This person who you call your own, he is sinning against you. She is sinning against you. Why do you acquit him? Why do you acquit her? They are not worthy of it. They are inconsistent. They are faithless. They are angry. They are bitter. They are lustful. They are prideful. Why do you let this go? You ever get that feeling when you sin? You feel so filthy, you think, why would God have anything to do with me? Why would he have anything to do with me? The defendant, the accused, is you. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But the verdict is that you're guilty apart from Christ, right? Prior to the new birth, our, our verdict is guilty, right? Uh, in Colossians 3, it says, For on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. The wrath of God in Ephesians comes upon the sons of disobedience. John chapter 3 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He's already judged. You see, if you're a Christian, that's not you anymore. See, the application is this. Here's the temptation. That despite the sacrifice given, despite the blood shed by Christ, despite for the payment of sins, that you, even as a Christian, can still revert to that thinking. Here's the struggle. God must not love me. Do you ever get there? How could I be a Christian? God must not love me. God doesn't love me anymore. There's no hope for me anymore. I've really messed things up. Here's the remedy. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because I'm ready. You ready, Manny? I'm ready. We have an advocate. We have an advocate. An advocate is a helper, an intercessor. In a legal sense, he is the counsel for defense. He is the defender. He's the one who appears on your behalf. He is a holy defense attorney, so to speak. And he says, we have, and I believe this to be the case. Notice he says here, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate, and he's talking, and I don't have too much time to talk about the Greek details of it, but what I believe he's saying, and many scholars believe this, is that if anyone sins, or when anyone sins, listen to me, brothers and sisters, at the instant of that sin, you have someone pleading your case. Do you get it? At your lowest, when you are removing the glory from Christ, 
Christ is there standing in your stead. Do you understand that? He says he is the advocate. We understand what advocate is in 1 Timothy 2. It says, we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But you have to see this here. I got to show you this. What does this mean? He is the go-between. He is unlike any other's defense attorney because his defense is not you. His defense is you didn't know. His, not, his defense is not, oh, you are not liable. His defense is himself. This is your Christ. Is the work done? Absolutely. But he is still praying for his people. It's amazing thought. At the point of my sin. If you want a, uh, uh, if you want a gram uh, grammarian uh, thing to write there, it's the punctiliar. That means at that point. That is amazing. That is love. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I think Mike read it. In Hebrews chapter 7, you've got to see this, okay? I take you to this text because it is so filled. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, right? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Let me start. Verse 23, the former priest on the one hand, he's talking about the Old Testament priests, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Notice verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, he's the better priest. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. He is the better promise. He is the better priest. He is the better covenant, okay? Verse 24, on the other hand, before he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He will always be your go-between. He will always be your advocate. Notice he says, verse 25, and this is glorious. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is presently speaking to God the Father on your behalf. His defense is not bribery. His defense is not an attempt to prove you innocent. In fact, you would fail. The evidence is stacked against you. And God sees everything, every thought, every action. He clearly admits your guilt. His defense is himself. Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does that mean? You notice even in verse Two, he says, he himself is the propitiation of our sins. The whole basis by which you are defended before God the Father is what? Himself, his character, his merit, his righteousness, his holiness, his work on the cross. Such that he comes to the Father and the accuser is there and you can see the courtroom drama. The accuser, the plaintiff is saying, he is a failure. She is a failure. Look at them. And Christ says, I know they are. 
but I died for them. And they will never face judgment. And then God the Father says, acquitted. Innocent. Blameless. Oh, saint, are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with sin? Go to this again. Remember that you have an advocate. You have a Christ who loves you. This advocate has the judge as his father because he's God. He sympathizes with your weakness since he was tempted in all things. He defends everyone who believes and repents. He has a 100% acquittal rate. Amen? He gets every single one of his clients off. He does this pro bono for free. If you would but trust in his righteousness, this advocate, though, though he paid dearly for your defense, he paid with his righteous life and with his own blood. Though it is free to you, it was not cheap to him. This is love. Let me read this verse. Don't go there. I want you to just listen. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God. We know this verse, Romans 8, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Whom he predestined, whom he also called, whom he called, those he also justified, whom he justified, those he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not freely give us all things, brothers and sisters? If Christ, in fact, was given for you, the greater, wouldn't he give you the lesser? If he gave his precious son to die on the cross, won't he give you power to face your trial? Won't he give power to face your loneliness? Won't he give you power to face your own sin and to repent? Won't he give you power to reconcile? Won't he give you power to do these things? Of course he would. But here it is. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? That is you, if you know Christ. All of heaven is called. All the universe is called. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You are innocent. Get up, Christian. You're forgiven. You have an advocate. Presume not. Despair not. Father, thank you so much that we can hear these words and dwell in your truth. We pray, Father, that you would grip our hearts, cause us to know you. Thank you that we can rely on your forgiveness. Thank you that we have a defense who is Christ himself, who stands in the gap even at our sin. Oh, we have an advocate Thank you for this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.